All right, let's let's begin our discussion of the occult. Uh, generally, we think that's just a Hollywood uh, deal. They, they do horror pictures and all this kind of stuff and witchcraft and wizards and warlocks and all this kind of stuff. That's, you know, that's just, that's not, uh, that's not really real, right? No, it's incredibly real. And the Bible is very blunt about it, especially in the Old Testament. So let's look at just a few passages here to whet our appetite. Let's begin with Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Now that would be for child sacrifice or demon worship. Or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. Or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead or sometimes it's translated necromancer. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. Now, this is written way back in the days of Moses, somewhere around 1500 B.C., and God is warning his people through Moses, as Moses records it in Deuteronomy 18, that God's people need to stay away from those who are in the occult. Now, if there's nothing to it, why would God warn us to stay away? And why would he call it an abomination? Well, obviously he wouldn't unless it was real. If you turn to Leviticus chapter 20, verses 6 and verse 27. And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. This, of course, is God speaking here. A man or a woman who is a medium, who has familiar spirits, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. I don't know if, if this, you know, translates into uh, New Testament theology. Well, how about in Galatians 5 verse 20, when uh, Paul is listing the works of the flesh, and he lists sorcery as one of those. Uh, Then you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit speaks expressly, meaning very emphatically and clearly, that in latter times some shall depart from the faith, well, what will they then turn themselves over to? Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. There are many people who seem to believe that you're either a believer or you're just neutral, right? Well, I'm not a believer, so I'm neutral. Well, actually, Jesus said you're either for me or against me. You are either living in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, or you're living in the kingdom of darkness. There is no neutral ground. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody who is an unbeliever is actually possessed or is practicing the occult arts, but the Bible seems to make it very, very clear that if you do not believe that which is right, you are incredibly vulnerable into believing, even by default, that which is incredibly wrong. Now we're living in a day where all of this is no longer hidden. Now there's still some of it hidden, but if you've noticed, 
the, the Marxists, the leftists, the Satanists, the occultists are all uh, brandishing their wares out in the wide open, boasting about it. I mean, I grew up in a time, many of you did as well, where this stuff was kind of hidden. People wouldn't actually come right out and say, well, I'm a socialist or I'm a Marxist. Uh, they, they wouldn't say, I'm a witch or, a, or a, a male witch, a warlock or a wizard. They wouldn't say that kind of stuff. Today, it's flaunted. It's something that they actually boast about while Christians seem to be retreating and apologizing for being who they are. Isn't that, isn't that a, a weird switch? Christians are hiding who they are so they won't be ridiculed, won't be involved in controversy, and those who are wicked are flaunting and bragging about who and what they are. It's a complete reversal of the roles. Well, the New Testament deals with that. So this is not just an Old Testament thing. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. We've looked at this previously. But no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So demonism, the occult, witchcraft, all of that is not just reserved to the Old Testament and to the so-called pagan cultures. Because I think if you look closely at these United States, you're going to have to conclude that at least half of us are a pagan culture, if not more. So these pagan cultures like the Hittites and the Perizzites and all those kinds of folks that we think about when, when we think of the pagan peoples uh, are, are no different than us today. Solomon says ultimately there's nothing new under the sun. There's really nothing new. It's just recycled. We put new labels on it. We give it a facelift and all that kind of stuff. Still the same thing. Uh, Paul made a, an incredible a parallel just a while ago to what the Nazis were doing in Germany when they said, look, you just need to have your children, and then after three months, uh, they're a ward of the state, they're ours anyway, and then we'll educate them. And so that's what uh, the uh, faithful Nazis were doing. So they'd, uh, you know, nurture their children for the, for the first three to six months, they'd turn them over to the state for brainwashing. You say, well, we'd never do that here in America. We're not Nazi. Well, look at what the government is doing in offering child education all the way down to what we would call nursery age so that moms can do what? Just like the Nazis were saying, we'll raise your children so you can go back to work. What are we saying in America? We'll take care of your children so you can do what? Work. Now, I'm not criticizing women who work, but I'm telling you, whenever work becomes so important to us, and career is so important that we will abdicate the rearing of our children to statists. We're just begging for everything we're getting now. So my point is, all we simply do is we just relabel it, give it a facelift, and call it child care instead of the Nazis saying, well, this is state-run. Well, it's the same thing. Same thing. We, we, we just, it, it's more palatable to us than if they said, well, we're just Nazis and we were going to demand that you let us educate your children. Well, we'd probably push back on that. So instead, the leftists, the Marxists say, well, here's what we'll do. We'll offer this to you. And if you want to take advantage of it, and everybody does. And the net effect is the same. So that's what we have in dealing with subjects like the occult. It's not just an Old Testament pagan culture issue. 
It is uh, very present, very up-to-date, sadly, and something we need to deal with. Now, the Bible is blunt about this. Yet most people are generally not familiar with everything the Bible teaches about everything we've been talking about over the last number of months. Whenever it was that we began our study on the faithful angels, because most people say, well, the Bible doesn't say much about angels. Well, we've refuted that statement, haven't we? Because the Bible has a great deal to say about angels. And then when you begin to broach the idea of the fallen angels, demons, well, you know, I don't know if the Bible has that much to say about it. Well, now we have fully refuted that position because the Bible actually has a great deal to say about these things. In fact, I'm finding that generally when people say, well, the Bible doesn't say that much about this, they just don't know what the Bible says. Because the Bible has a great deal to say about almost everything and certainly everything of any real importance. So the Bible has a great deal to say about it, and yet generally what happens to Christians is we've never developed a systematic theology, meaning that we don't know what the Bible says about a particular subject from Genesis to Revelation. We just know little pieces here and there, but we can't ever attach them. So it's kind of like building a puzzle with some of the uh, pieces missing, and unfortunately for most Christians, most of the pieces are missing. And so we have some of the pieces. So we have never developed a systematic theology. We don't know what the Bible says about particular subjects. So there's kind of two ways to study the Bible. You can either exegete the Bible verse by verse, which I am a strong proponent of. But you can also study the Bible topically and develop a systematic theology about subject. I think you ought to do both. And so when you think of the Bible and you think of topics, you ought to be able in your mind to go to a certain passage of Scripture and let that be your anchor. And then from there you work your way out. So for instance, if you wanted to know about the resurrection and what a believer's body is going to be like in eternity, where would you first go? Well, for me, I'd go to 1 Corinthians 15 because 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. Now, it's not the only place, either in the Old or the New Testament, where God gives us a lot of insight about the resurrection, but it's a perfect place to go to, to then branch out and study, and so 1 Corinthians 15 is my anchor chapter for that. All right, so what about what happens when someone dies? What is it like in the, quote, spirit world? Well, there's a lot of places you could go to, but my anchor chapter is Luke 16 where Jesus pulls back the veil and allows us to look into what we'd call the spirit world. And you see two men that have died. One's a believer and one is an unbeliever. And the one who's a believer is named Lazarus. And he's in a place called paradise. Whereas the rich man is in a place called hell, tormented in punishment. Well, that's a good place to work out of. Or if you want to study about spiritual gifts, where would you go? Well, for me, 1 Corinthians 12 is my anchor chapter. Now, there are many other places you go to, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. There are many other places you can go to study spiritual gifts. But see, in my mind, now I haven't done it enough yet because there's still a whole lot of room for learning. But I've started to hang chapters in my head and my heart to develop 
some level of systematic theology. Well, that's what we're doing here. We're teaching from all over the scriptures on fallen angels, demons, and today, of course, we're beginning the discussion on the occult itself, which will be the practices of those who are demonized at some level. Of course, worst case scenario, they're possessed. So what would be a good chapter to be a, a biblical chapter to hang your or put your hooks into for your study on the occult? Well, I believe it revolves around the episode that is depicted in this painting. Now, this is the episode where a king of Israel by the name of Saul wants to know the outcome of an impending battle. Now, Saul has developed a, a long history of resisting God's will and of being an ungodly man. Now, I don't know whether or not Saul was a believer. I don't know whether or not we'll see King Saul in heaven. But I do know that as a, an Israelite, he had, had strayed greatly from orthodox faith. We do know that for a fact. So he decides that he wants to know the outcome of an impending battle. So he goes to his counselors and he asks them where he could find someone that can tell the future because many of those people had been eradicated from Israel. So we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 28. So for me, in the occult, this is a really good anchor spot. You kind of read this story and then you can branch out from there and study the subject. So that's what we're going to do. 1 Samuel 28, obviously we're not going to read the whole chapter, just some select verses, starting at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Now what is a medium? Well, a medium is a generic term that typically referred to someone who either could tell the future, claimed to be a fortune teller, and or was able to discern certain points about the future by using a familiar spirit, which is a demon. Now we'll come back to that in just a moment. And his servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. You remember uh, Bewitched, the television series back in the, what would that be, late 60s or 70s? Uh, you remember the, the mother's name, Endora. Where do you think they got that name? Right here, Endor. You'd be surprised what these Hollywood scriptwriters know about the Bible. They may not believe it, but they know some about it. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes so he doesn't want to be recognized. He's going incognito. He went and two men with him and they came to the woman by night. And he said, please conduct a seance for me. Now I realize that you may be reading different uh, translations of scripture. But whatever your translation says, that's what he meant. A seance. So in other words, he wants this woman to communicate with the dead. This is what he's going to do. And bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. So this woman doesn't recognize that she's actually talking to the king who's given some commands to get rid of these people. And she's being deceived here. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die. 
Well, of course, then Saul says, look, you're covered. I'm here asking for help. So then we jump to verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Now, some verses, uh, versions say she screamed or she shrieked. So what's happening here is she's shocked because she did not expect to see the real McCoy. She's expecting for her familiar spirit, which is a demon, to impersonate a deceased person so that she could deceive her clients Make them think she actually has the ability to bring back the dead when really all she's doing is making money with the aid of a demon who impersonates dead people. Now, we're, we're going to get deeper into this as we move along, but I think this is important that we digest all this. Well, when the woman realizes that the real Samuel has shown up, she, she shrieks, she screams, I believe in fear. She's terrorized because this is the first time that a real person has come back. See, she's never talked to a real dead person, which should let you have a little insight into the deception that is involved in occultic practices. She's, she's deceived too. Now all of a sudden, here's the real Samuel. So she says to Saul, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. Now, there's a whole separate study about that. What does she mean by ascending out of the earth? Where did Old Testament believers go? Well, a little bit of that is seen in Luke 16. I know that's intriguing now, but if we get into that, we'll never make any more progress in our occult study. So we'll probably come back to that in a whole different study and look at that. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now I want you to notice the contradiction and the irony here. Here is a wayward king of Israel who knows the Bible well enough to know who Samuel, of course, is, right? Because Samuel is is practically a contemporary He realizes that Samuel is a true prophet of God, and he bows down, but he's doing this in the home of a witch that he is paying to disobey God's commands. Look at the irony of that. See, sin normally takes us much deeper than we ever intended to go and much further away from God's will than we ever intended and ends up costing us more than we ever planned. This is exactly what's happening with Saul. Now, this is how, by the way, we live in a day where people claim to be Christians, but they believe things that are completely contrary to the Bible, and we stand there scratching our heads saying, how is that possible? How can they be reading the same Bible that I read, and yet they come up with a completely different conclusion? Well, most generally, I would say it's because they're not truly saved. They're not truly born again. Next Sunday, I'm going to preach a sermon entitled, Can You Pass the Test? And I'm going to lay out particular tests right out of the Bible that you can use to determine if you're a Christian, if a family member is a Christian, or a friend. Not playing God, not playing judge, because ultimately that's between every individual and God. But the Bible actually gives faith tests. 
And I'm telling you, there are a whole lot of people in this world, and I'm talking about church people, who claim to be saved, who are not, and they're going to die and they're going to go to hell. Not because Dan Fisher said it. Now, I can't know necessarily who they are. I'm not going to get into that. Because that's not ultimately my job. I'm not the judge. But the Bible gives us clear indicators. And when people are fooling around with stuff like this, you almost have to conclude that they're not believers. That's how today you've got people like Max Lucado. Now, I don't know whether Max Lucado is not a believer. But you've got guys like Max Lucado who so feels the pressure that he apologizes recently. I used it in a sermon, if you remember. He apologizes for having preached a sermon back, uh, oh, 10 or 15 years ago from Scripture on homosexuality and condemning it according to God's Word. And then just a few months ago, the same Max Lucado apologizes to the leaders of the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. for having ever done that. Now, how in the world does a Christian writer like Max Lucado get there? Well, same way Saul is bowing to the prophet Samuel in a witch's house. Kind of the same way. You see why when Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, there's really nothing new under the sun. Okay, so uh, now, uh, and Saul perceived that Samuel bowed to the ground. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And then let's jump to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he, meaning God, killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. You know, when you read the Bible and you let the Bible speak for itself, it's pretty graphic. Notice where it says that God killed Saul. I had a man at the Capitol a few weeks ago who is a uh, state senator asked me why we were there to rally. And I said, well, we're going to kind of beat up on uh, pro Tim Greg Treat. He said, well, be Christ-like about it. And I looked at him and said, like, in as the judgment? <laughs> because, you see, we typically believe Christ-like means mealy-mouthed, spineless, Sugar and spice and everything nice and honey flowing. The Jesus that they have created is a caricature of the biblical Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that all Jesus wants to do is beat us on the head and condemn us for our sins. Because the scripture says he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But when people reject God's truth and blatantly disobey him, the Bible says in common Oklahoma terminology, he's going to bring the roof of that house down on top of their heads. So when we say be Christ-like about it, so here the Bible says Saul had so offended God, God killed him. Capital punishment. Now see, you won't hear that these days. People are not going to say that. And yet the Bible talks about a sin unto death that a Christian can commit where God's going to take them out prematurely. And he kills them. They've committed capital crimes before God, and therefore God executes them. By the way, this is how the idea of capital punishment is derived. It's not the only way in which it's derived, because there are other passages of Scripture. But God practices capital punishment. 
And Saul is an example. Now for me, though I've spent a lot of time on this opening story, this is kind of where I hang my hat when it comes to what the Bible has to say about the occult. Because this thing is dripping with information, but as we're going to see, it's all through the Scriptures. It's all through the Scriptures. Now let's actually look at your outline and let's start writing some things down. First of all, let's discover a definition for the word occult because it's always very helpful if we can define our terminology. The word occult obviously comes from a Latin derivative which we would actually recognize as the word occult because it's the word occultus in Latin. It simply means to cover up or hide a hidden secret, dark, mysterious, concealed phenomenon which transcend man's senses or realm of natural experience. So initially what the occult is, is the works of demons in the dark, normally carried on under the table, behind the veil, so they can pull off their ruse, their deception. Unfortunately, you can get a culture where it is so decadent that they can remove the cover and they just come right out and blurt it out, which is what I commented on a while ago. But typically speaking, in a civil society, occult practices have to be done in secret, done in darkness. Remember what Jesus said about those who work evil? He said they love the dark because the light exposes their deeds as evil. So they run from the light. Well, that's really a perfect uh, definition of the occult. Practices done in darkness in the hope that God will not see. Obviously, God sees. He knows it all. And so you have two worlds fighting. You have the world of the light illuminated by God's truth. And you have the world of darkness deceived by the very prince of darkness we know as the devil or Satan. So how then should we tackle this subject of the occult? Well, I'm sure there's many ways, and I'm, I'm, I'm not an, an authority on the occult. But I, I believe that in some study that I have done, an easy way to do it is to divide occult practices into three categories. So we're going to begin by looking at each category and trying to determine how then we can understand and maybe better describe, explain, uh, protect ourselves from and others we know from these practices. So let's begin with uh, the obvious number one, and that is divination, which comes from the Latin derivative that you would again uh, recognize almost as the word divine or the word divination, which means to foresee or to foretell or foretell the truth. To foretell the truth. In other words, we're talking here about uh, fortune tellers. People who claim to be able to see things. Now this is obviously one of the gifts that Saul hoped that the witch would have. But in case she couldn't foretell what was going to happen at this battle, he was hoping that she could bring back Samuel and he could tell him. Which is a sin at so many different levels that is no doubt why God took Saul out. Now, whether or not we'll see him in heaven, I don't know. I suspect maybe not, but in the end, that's not my call. So, uh, anyway. So, so how, how, do you, how do we understand divination? Well, 
kind of subdivide it into two kinds of divination. One that's just simply called artificial divination. What does that mean? Well, that's interpreting signs or omens under indirect demonic control. Now, in the end, let me also say all occultism is demonic. But there are some people who don't really realize that. Their intent is not to be possessed. Their intent is not to be in league with demons or with Satan. They're just caught up into this this whole world of mysticism and and the intrigue of being able to predict things and to mess around with spiritism and astral projection and all of that. They don't really mean to directly involve themselves with demons or with demonology. And that's what we'd call artificial divination. And then the the next level would be what we might call inspirational divination. That's when the individual is intentionally using a demon-controlled medium to forecast what is seen or predicted. So here, there's no pretense. It's just open, known, blatant demonism. Now, they're both demonism. It's just that one... The first one, artificial, the person is more duped than, than the second. At least the second one knows what they're doing. Now, they're deceived in the end because they think somehow this is a good thing, but they're more blatant about it, and being involved with demons is no big deal to them. Now, if you'll notice, I, I put all this in there on your notes simply because you probably wouldn't have time to write it. So, so what would practices of divination look like? Well, astrology, palmistry, card reading, often the tarot cards, Ouija boards. You know, back years ago when I was a kid, uh, I can't remember if it was Milton Bradley or who the game maker was, the toy manufacturer, actually made for the first time Ouija boards into a toy. Some of you are old enough, you remember that. I remember some of my friends getting one for Christmas. And they thought it was so cool to be playing around with this and messing around. And yet over the years, I've talked to many people who were innocently fooling around with a Ouija board as a game and weird stuff started happening. I mean, stuff that they would say, whoa, that's supernatural. Well, you know why? Because a Ouija board is not a dreamed up game by Milton Bradley or whoever did it. Ouija board is an ancient tool of witches practicing witchcraft what would have possessed i think we probably know a toy manufacturer to think that they could make a ouija board as a toy that's not a toy those didn't work dreamed up back in the you know mid to late 60s and early 70s that's an ancient witchcraft tool so ouija boards crystal balls and then something that has spilled over into Christianity. Typically, most Christians don't, get, don't mess around with astrology, although I know a lot of people who will look at their astrological uh, uh, label that, that for their month of birth and read the astrology charts and all this kind of stuff that used to be printed in the newspapers. And they would do it kind of innocently, I'm not suggesting that they were worshiping demons or that they became possessed by it. But guys, that is all a bunch of nonsense, hocus pocus. If you make enough predictions, often enough, you can be right every now and then. A blind pig will find an acorn every now and then, right? 
a broken clock is right twice a day. Every year, approaching January the 1st, uh, different periodicals will publish predictions from so-called well-known prognosticators or fortune tellers. Some like Gene Dixon. Do you realize that they are almost always wrong? Almost 100% of the time. And yet they continue to print this nonsense. But most Christians don't get into palmistry or card reading. But amazingly, especially in the Word of Faith movement, Christians have dabbled into trying to discern the will of God by dreams and visions. Now, that's where I want us to spend just a little bit of time. We're, we're quickly running out of time here in the class. But let's, let's move into that. Uh, look at Jeremiah 10, verse 2. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2, God says this, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Now, what he's referring to there are the non-religious, non-Jewish peoples. They were very religious. Uh, I sh- should have used a different word. They were very religious, but worshiping the wrong God. Uh, people that were not influenced by the God of the Bible. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the Gentiles are dismayed at them. Well, the signs of heaven that he's talking about are the signs of the zodiac. That's astrology. And he's telling us here not to be messing with that. You say, well, once again, that's just the Old Testament. Well, let's go to the New Testament. Acts chapter 7, verses 41 through 43. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the what? The host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets... Did you uh, offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Well, not only is this demon and idol worship, this is astrology. Now you say, well, Dan, you said something about dreams and visions. Well, we're headed there. But let's, let's at least cover one more uh, bullet point and then we'll just have to stop because obviously you heard the bell. Scripture clearly forbids seeking to know the future through dreams and visions, especially employing the occult. Now the reason why I'm zeroing in on dreams and visions is because most of us probably don't mess around with astrology, palmistry, tarot card reading and all that kind of stuff. But unfortunately... The, the idea of dreams and visions has become kind of vogue in the Christian church, especially in the Word of Faith movement. Now, the, the whole idea comes from the Old Testament where God literally did sometimes speak through dreams and visions. Uh, God spoke through visions with Abraham. God obviously spoke in many different ways throughout the Old Testament. But there's a reason for that. And primarily, it was because they did not have the entire written Word of God to refer to. You'll even find in the early years of the New Testament era, God will still sometimes give visions. God gives Peter a vision. You remember the sheet that was lowered down? But that was a, that was a message from God so that the New Testament church would take the gospel to the non-Jewish peoples of the world, what we call Gentiles. Well, that's a pretty major deal. That's not like me knowing whether or not I ought to buy that new pickup or whether I ought to take this job or that job, so I'm using a dream to interpret that. 
That's not all that earth-shattering. It may be important to me personally, but it doesn't determine the spiritual uh, uh, outcome for multiplied millions and billions of people. But you'll notice as the New Testament comes to an end, dreams and visions are out and the Word of God is in. Now, I'm not suggesting that God can never communicate to us in a dream or a vision, but I'm suggesting to you that He generally does not. Now, that may be a little bit offensive. I don't mean for it to be, but I've had so many people over the years tell me, well, I had this dream and I think God was saying that. Well, here's the problem, I think. See, when I crack open God's Word, I don't have to say, I think. I know exactly what God is saying. Everything else is subjective. God's Word is objective. And I'm not going to put my spiritual welfare or my family or my friends or what I'm going to do for God based upon some kind of objective thing that is kind of like licking my finger and sticking into the wind to see which way the wind is blowing. Now, unfortunately, that's as far as we can go today. So I want us to stop right there. And we'll pick up there with dreams and visions. We're going to look at some passages of Scripture and see what God has to say about those who use dreams and visions to discern the will of God. Because I'm telling you, I believe in most instances that is a mistake. It's almost akin to what Saul did with the witch at Endor, just maybe not quite as blatant. So we'll begin there next time. And hopefully that's kind of a good cliffhanger anyway. So let's stop right there and we'll pick up. So hang on to your outline and we'll pick up right there next week. All right. God bless you. Thanks for letting me finish that thought up. We'll have our worship service here in about 12 minutes.